Broadcasting live from the Zimmer Communications World Headquarters. This is Wake Up Mid-Missouri. Get ready, pal. During the search, one candidate stood out to our interview panel and many community members. They have proven themselves as a strong leader, and their ideas for the police department match those priorities that the community said they wanted. And with that, I would like to welcome Columbia's next police chief and the first female chief, Jill Shoot. Well, welcome back to Wake Up Mid-Missouri, and uh, that was to Carlon Seawood, city manager of Columbia, announcing the next chief of police for the city of Columbia, Missouri. Jill Schluti, and she joins us now. Thank you so much with all that's going on and the turbulence in your life for spending a little time with us, Chief uh, Elect. <laughs> Jill, thanks for being with us. Thank you, guys. Good morning. Hey, so I think a lot of folks would like to know a little bit about you, your history, uh, you know, your bio, and uh, and why you applied for the job. Well, I'm originally from St. Joseph, Missouri. I grew up there, and I moved to Columbia in 1995 to attend school. And I've lived here mostly that entire time since 1995. I spent a little bit of time away for a job, but pretty much in Columbia since 1995. Uh, I just had my 18-year anniversary with the police department last month, so I've been there quite a while. Uh, why did I apply for the job? Well, I think when when certain... Um, opportunities present themselves you know it took a lot of there was a lot of conversations at home with my family as i mentioned yesterday my husband is a sergeant at the police department and so we knew that would mean he would need to retire so there were a lot of conversations around that but i i think i felt like i had spent 12 years as a member of of command staff at the department and i felt like i had seen enough things and been involved in enough things that i had a good knowledge base to be part of a leadership team and be, be the leader of a leadership team, honestly, that could get us through this next phase because we've got some big challenges ahead of us. But I'm excited about the prospect of that. Well, and again, we congratulate you. It was good to see you yesterday, and, uh, and you've been with the department since 2005, and you'll, of course, be sworn in December the 4th at the city council meeting. Ms. Schlude, I asked you yesterday at the press conference and gave me a really good answer, but I'll have you elaborate just a little bit. I asked you about priorities, and you mentioned the shortage. Uh, you're about 63% staffing right now on patrol. Uh, another one, in fact, you said the number one priority right now for your department as you become chief will be to answer 911 calls. And that did not get as much media coverage as I thought it would. It certainly has for me, but I think that's a big deal. I'm going to have you elaborate on that, the importance of that. And, and, and what's the, what's the situation up there with the, uh, the dispatch center? How many operators roughly do they need? Oh, wow. I, I, the last time I sat in on one of their meetings, I know they are significantly short at the 911 center as well. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a huge challenge for them, and, and we're kind of in the same boat with them when it comes to that. Uh, you know, all across the department and every bureau and division, we are carrying vacancies. And we try to do that very strategically so that not no one unit is overwhelmed with with work. Unfortunately, we're in a position right now where we're holding vacancies in 
detectives and street crimes and narcotics in a lot of different places. We don't. We used to have an officer embedded with Office of Neighborhood Services. That position has not been filled since that officer retired in July. So there are a lot of places where we have needs and we just can't put people in them because we're so short-staffed on the street. And the reality is if we don't have enough officers on the street, we can't answer those 911 calls as they come in or other high-priority calls that, that come to us. And we all have to remember that officers do need time off. Mm-hmm. So if we don't have enough people staffed on the street, it's extremely difficult to get people days off, and that leads to a lot of burnout and that harms retention. So we're going to be looking at ways we can best use the resources that we have right now while also trying to look towards the future and how do we recruit more employees while we retain the ones that we have. Chief, talk to us about uh, that recruiting effort, especially as it regards young people. We know Lincoln University in Jefferson City has the first law enforcement training academy based based at a historically black college in the country. How do you convince young people to go into law enforcement? Well, I think the approach that a lot of departments had when when people that are in my my age group and older were recruited was more uh, appealing to the ex- excitement, if you will, of law enforcement. So, you know, car chases and things like that. And and while that is certainly, I think you have to be, you have to like excitement if you want to get into this job, obviously, and, and the unpredictability. But I think what we're seeing across the nation is much more of a side where people, and especially new recruits, they want to feel part of something bigger where they're making a difference. And so we're going to have to look at our recruiting efforts as far as how we are presenting the job to the people that we want to have come work for us. I think you're seeing a lot more service-oriented recruiting. Uh, I think that's positive. I think it's also much more realistic about what the job really is. Uh, you know, Columbia is a fairly fairly big town, but we're not Kansas City, we're not St. Louis, and we're certainly not Dallas or Chicago. And so we don't engage in all those kinds of things every day, thankfully. So we have to be honest with people about what the job is. And at its core, it's really about helping people a lot of times on their worst days. Sometimes that's connecting them with services. Sometimes that's just talking to them. Sometimes, unfortunately, it's arresting them. But I think we need to appeal to the the public service side of the job. We're talking to newly appointed chief of police in Columbia, Jill Schluti. And um, chief, I, I wanted to play a little bit of your opening remark and maybe get into the little weeds about your agenda, if I may. So here's a little bit of that from yesterday. My vision is one of community partnership and proactive engagement. I believe in fostering open lines of communication, listening to the concerns of our residents and staff, and collaboratively addressing the challenges that we will face. Together, we can build trust, enhance public safety, and create a city where everyone feels secure. Okay. So, when I heard that, I heard that there, there's at least a perception of some trust issues among, well, we certainly know there's some vocal uh, contingent in this community that has uh, some trust issues. But you mentioned proactive engagement. With whom and with what goal? Well, I want to be really clear that when I said that, that is also a a two-way street. Uh, I think I've seen over the years, and in some cases where we have a problem, especially pervasive problems, currently I would say that is things like homelessness would be a good example. And I think 
those things have kind of been taken and laid at the front door of the police department in some respects, not by everybody, but by some folks. And the reality is we don't have the time, the resources, or in some cases, even the expertise to deal with those as long-term problems. We can be part of that solution, and we certainly want to be at the table because we play a role in a lot of those areas. But to think that the police department or probably even the city government itself is going to solve things like gun violence, homelessness, it's just not realistic. And so I think people are going to have to start really getting engaged with the police department just as much as we we need to get engaged with the public. There's a lot of voices out there. There's a lot of great ideas, and I'm a big believer in people being heard. I am a realist, though. I know we're not always going to agree, and that's okay. Um, Another thing I mentioned was unity, and unity is not everyone singing kumbaya and everybody loves each other. To me, unity is unity of purpose. If we're all in agreement, there are things that we need to change here in the community, and we're all going and pulling in that direction. I think some of those differences won't be as meaningful as long as we're getting those things accomplished. Now, when we heard you were announced, um, DeCarlin Seawood announced you as the first female police chief. Um, what does that mean to you? And do you think, does it add extra pressure as you go forward in your role? It's obviously meaningful to me. Any Anytime you feel like you're somebody who uh, has been able to, to go into something and I think make that more realistic for other people that are going to come behind you, I think that's special. Uh, I, I mentioned, you know, there were some great women that I got the opportunity to work with that I saw move up through the ranks. I think when I came to the police department, Zim Schwartz was a captain. So she was already serving in a command staff role. Uh, Diane Bernhard was the first deputy chief of police. She actually preceded me directly in that role. So uh, there's there's been some people over the years that I think have really been pushing on that glass ceiling, I guess, so to speak. So I'm, I'm honored to be in, in the role. I do think there is some extra pressure, of course. Um, I, I, I think there's always pressure on the police chief, no matter what. Um, I, I think hopefully this... In, in this point in time in the city, I just hope everybody is ready to come together and start really working together, regardless of who's in charge of the police department. And I think we're going to be able to do that. And I'm really, really excited to be part of that effort. If I may just uh, wrap up our, our time with you, um, Chief Schluty, I have to tell you that many of our listeners uh, join me in a lot of concern over the predicate with which um, act, some activists in the community approach the very highly publicized and on video social media, um, you know, exposed uh, events. I'm thinking of the of the of the uh, Harpo's event where, got, where a couple of officers re- resigned. Um, I went to the 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 expose by Don Weaver on how police are trained and the various escalation techniques that they use, and I came away with an entirely and in better informed opinion of exactly what everyone saw initially on that. And yet there were people in the room that night that actually in their statements, it was clear the predicate among some in this community and others across America, the predicate is, the assumption is that whenever there is an encounter between a police officer and a someone that is either acting out violently, a threat to themselves or others, however you want to point, point that, a, a potential perpetrator or an actual perpetrator, that there's an intent to harm. That there's that's the predicate that they come at that with that. I think that we think that you're going to hurt us, that you're there to kill us, that you're there to shoot us, not not kill, but shoot us. How are you going to combat and try to get at just the myth that that is? That's just a blatant myth 
I learned it that day with Don Weaver's presentation on police training. Well, first of all, I'll say I, I think it's really important that people see every single incident that occurs that is its own incident. It's not going to be exactly like any other incident that they're going to watch. So there are things that happened before, things that happened during that are going to be different than any other incident they may have watched. And I think sometimes the knee-jerk reaction is to just compare things they see locally to something they may have seen nationally that, that it really isn't relevant uh, in, a lot of, in a lot of ways. I think it's important that people know that when I look at these things, and I've been over internal affairs before, I've been involved in that process for years in many different shapes, it's important to understand that it's vital that police officers feel like they are getting due process. If they don't feel like they're getting due process, I can promise you we will not be recruiting police officers to work in Columbia, Missouri. And so it's also difficult when you think about people who – If they're doing their jobs correctly, police officers are spending their time ensuring that the people that they deal with are getting due process. And to try to turn that around and think that it's going to be fair or they're going to perceive it as fair if they're not getting due process when they may have done something wrong, whether as a mistake or willfully did something, you're just not going to – that's not going to harm morale. So I I think it's important – I think the the role that I have to play in that is – I have to prove to people that the police department is going to take care of things when they arise. And the problem with that whole process is personnel records aren't public. So anything that we do, any action that we take, whether that's as small as a counseling, if it's training, if it's something actually disciplinary like a suspension or a demotion, those things aren't public knowledge. So when we do those things, unfortunately, that's just the way it is. And I, I, I understand why it's that way. And I understand that's hard for people to to build trust. However, I do think there are some things we can do to be a little bit more transparent uh, that I'm going to be talking with the legal department about as far as reports we can release that we used to do that still protect people's identity, but give people the assurance that we are handling internal matters correctly. Well, new chief of police in Columbia, Jill Schluty, we thank you for that uh, transparency. And you are now the the chief peacekeeper, in a sense, and the chief peacemaker in a sense and uh, it's a tough job and i am certain after talking with you and looking at your resume and watching what people have said that you are way far up to this job and will do a great one we wish you all the best hope to talk with you again as your tenure uh follows through thanks so much for being with us on wake up mid-missouri thank you all have a great morning all right there she is Chief of Police, Jill Schluty. Well, not until December 4th officially, right? Officially. Might as well, though, be. Uh, when we uh, when we come back, can we even touch it? It's so hot. The hot with Hannah today. Is it going to be like, ah. Yeah, but I'm not real happy about it. <laughs> Stephanie will be thrilled. I'm thrilled. Really? Yes. Well, it must not be a Hallmark movie. We'll be back with more on Wake Up Mid-Missouri. A.G. Bailey coming up at 735. This is Wake Up Mid-Missouri. Their words are their responsibility. What you think, that's on you. This is Wake Up Mid-Missouri. Well, coming up in just a few uh, minutes, A.G. Bailey. But before that, it's just two minutes after 725, Mm -hmm. which means it's time for Hot with Hannah. Man, we are not on a good streak this week, guys. I'm sorry. Come on. You know, for me hating this item as much as I do, I sure do end up talking about it a lot. 
And I'm not sure how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. But of course, once again, we're talking about the abomination that is Crocs. <laughs> oh, come on. So you're not a Croc fan. You think they're a Croc. The, yeah. yeah. Okay. They're hideous and... As fashionable as Stephanie Bell is, I cannot for the life of me believe <laughs> that she is a Croc fan. But she is, and we fight about it. All she the is time. the diva of broadcast fashion. I think I have like 20 pairs in my house, like between wow. my kids and me. You and Imelda Marcos? I think I have like five pairs of my own. Now they're really, really durable. So, like, I'm an OG Crocs gal. <laughs> and I. Not bought, the humble brag you think it is. I bought my first pair of Crocs probably when I was in college, which would have been 2004. So, and I still have those Crocs because you know what? They're good quality products. One of the Wake Up family members sent us a meme one time, and it said that the holes in Crocs are for your dignity to seep out or something like that. (laughs) Uh, But McDonald's is teaming up with Crocs once again. They, a while back, had released some Chicken McNugget and Big Mac Gibbets, which are the little charms that you can stick in the holes of your Crocs to make it even uglier. Wow. Uh, so they're teaming up with McDonald's yet again to release some extra hideous ones. There's four pairs coming out, and they're all based off of the traditional McDonald's characters that you think of. So there's, you know, black and white striped ones for, <laughs> any guesses? The Hamburglar. The hamburglar. Yes. There's a pair of bright yellow ones for Birdie. Big, big Bird? <laughs> big Bird. Birdie, the early bird. Okay. But there's a pair of purple ones for Grimace. And they are like sandal style. Yes. And they are fur lined. How about yes. one for McRib? <laughs> fur lined sandals from Crocs. Hannah, would you like the Crocs to go the way of McRib? Never be seen again and retired? That would be great. <laughs> All right. That's hot with Hannah for today when we, when we come back. Andrew Bailey with a big announcement. We'll be right back. News, analysis, and opinion, free of charge from Wake Up Mid-Missouri. Welcome back to Wake Up Mid-Missouri. I'm Randy Tober, along with Stephanie Bell. Good morning. And producer Hannah. Hello. And John Marsh. Good morning. And we have a special guest. His name is Missouri's Attorney General, Andrew Bailey, who joins us now after the release of a big report, General Bailey. Tell us about it. Yeah, guys. Hey, look, we're proud of the work we did to remove the Soros-backed prosecutor in the city of St. Louis. She was unlawfully refusing to do her job. She had turned control of the streets over to the criminals. She needed to be held accountable we filed action uh, in, in court to remove her within less than 45 days of me being in office. We pushed that case forward, and two hours before she was about to be ordered to sit for deposition and turn over tens of thousands of pages of documents, she vacated that office, and it was a direct result of our work in this litigation, and we're proud of the work we did. It's important that the people understand what went wrong here so we can put systems in place to prevent it from ever happening again, and that's all documented in the report. We wanted to get that out there so that the people could see where the breakdown occurred in this deadly social experiment that had catastrophic results, not only for St. Louis, but for the people of the state of Missouri. It's been a tough, uh, it's been a tough battle across the, the, these United States, hasn't it, General Bailey? Trying to, 
to root out these guys and just get them guys and gals across the state, whether it's in St. Louis or Chicago or anywhere. And uh, Missouri, and with your leadership, was successful in that, whereas other jurisdictions, I think of L.A. and others, even recall votes haven't uh, resulted in uh, either resignation or oust or one way or another. It was good to see. Yeah, look, Missouri's fortunate that uh, we, we live in a state that has a legal mechanism, and certainly as Attorney General, we had the the fortitude and tenacity to file the suit and push it forward. You know, I think the numbers are telling. Look, there were 4,000 police reports, more than 4,000 police reports, sitting on a desk that she hadn't touched. Those were crimes that were committed that were reported by the police that she didn't do anything about. She had a 90% non-prosecution rate. Of the reports she actually did review, she didn't do anything about 96% of them, which means she's only filing about 4% of the cases that, that come to her office. She had a 39% dismissal rate. So of the small percentage of cases she actually filed, she dismissed 39% of them. And to put it in context, the court had to dismiss 2,700 cases because of her unlawful refusal to send discovery, prep witnesses for trial, and and show up to court. And that forced the court to have to dismiss cases. So this was an abominable failure. She came to office bragging about uh, you know, a new uh, a new uh, approach to criminal justice to reduce the criminal uh, the, the footprint of the criminal justice system to balance racial equities. And anytime you have that kind of nebulous social agenda, harm follows. And it had deadly catastrophic consequences uh, for the state of Missouri. General, is uh, coming from your background as a prosecutor yourself, both uh, at the county level and also in the AG's office. What about Kim Gardner stands out to you the most? Well, I think one of the things that's most frightening, and I think this is kind of a telltale sign for uh, other states, and again, potentially a a blueprint for other states to use, but she partnered with the Vera Institute. And the Vera Institute is a left-wing, radical uh, advocacy organization. Unfortunately, the the Vera Institute receives federal funding. They they receive uh, grants from Biden's Department of Justice, tens of millions of taxpayer dollars that funnel through the DOJ into the Vera Institute and allows this insidious group to infiltrate prosecutors' offices. Uh, The Vera Institute became hopelessly intertwined with uh, Kim Gardner's office and encouraged her to abandon a case-by-case analysis in favor of a systemic approach. So what does that mean? That means she's nullifying law by not enforcing it. Specifically, let's look at armed criminal action, Section 571 If you commit a felony and also use a dangerous or deadly instrument, you are also guilty of a second felony of armed criminal action. Armed criminal action carries a minimum, uh, mandatory minimum prison term. That's an important tool for prosecutors to use to get the most violent offenders, the people that are hurting other people, off the street. She refused to file ACA actions. And so that's exactly what the very institute had called on her to do. She acquiesced. That partnership, again, was devastating. And so we're calling on Congress to eliminate future funding from the for the Vera Institute. I would encourage other like-minded state attorneys general to look at their uh, state-level prosecutions and determine if any of their offices have partnered with the Vera Institute and eliminate and eradicate those relationships because they have devastating consequences for public safety. Attorney General Andrew Bailey joins us on Wake Up Mid-Missouri this morning. So now that she's gone and we've got a new prosecutor in there, Gabe Gore, are you all interfacing with him at all, helping with the transition, keeping an eye on that office? Because, you know, you can't just write that ship, you know, super quickly. Yeah, Stephanie, thank you for asking. That That is an untold part of this story in the history of the state of Missouri that I'm so proud of that uh, I think that people need to understand. We didn't just remove Kim Gardner. We instantly helped restore 
the rule of law and find justice for victims. So we were going to court on May 16th and two hours before we were supposed to be in court, she resigned three hours after that, my office sent a team of seven prosecutors into the circuit attorney's office. And so imagine that we were adversarial to our office. All of a sudden we've got the keys. The governor has appointed us to assist. We go into that office and instantly reestablish law and order. How did we do that? We reopened warrant office. So as police were catching criminals and applying for warrants, we were submitting those warrants to the court to hold those individuals in custody until such time as the case could start moving forward. We got we were on the scene of a homicide that night, helping uh, fill out uh, search warrants to hold that wrongdoer accountable. We instantly prepared numerous cases for jury trial by getting evidence out the door, part of discovery, by subpoenaing witnesses, prepping the case for trial. We mentored the skeleton crew staff she still had remaining so that they could stand up and do their jobs for the first time in years. Uh, we also... Uh, kept, we, we helped start reviewing cases for new charges and got several cases bound over through probable cause hearings. And we kept 100 cases as a safety valve. Uh, that's the kind of uh, work we did to restore the rule of law in the city of St. Louis. And again, that's an untold part of the, the, the history of this event. General Bailey, we appreciate you joining us. I'm going to go, go back to that about that warrant office. That was tell us about that. That was you said you reopened it. So that was closed and why was that? Why was that closed? And when was that closed? So at some point during Kim Gardner's tenure, she stopped having a an attorney at a desk 24-7 to receive warrant applications from the police officer. So at 4 a.m., if there's a homicide and the police catch the suspect and have probable cause to hold him, they need to be able to, they, they can't do that for more than 24 hours without, without a judge signing a warrant. And so there used to be an office with a desk and a computer and a prosecutor sitting there 24-7, and the police could show up and say, hey, I just caught this bad guy. Here's my probable cause statement. The uh, uh, prosecuting attorney would help fill out a warrant application and would get a, an order from the, the judge to hold the suspect in custody. Tim Gardner stopped doing that. And so what happened was she just set up a computer system and, and police would have to email their warrant applications in and she would kind of get to them when she could. But it essentially resulted in a catch and release policy where the police were catching bad guys on the street in real time, but they couldn't hold them because they couldn't get a warrant because the prosecutor wasn't fulfilling their proper role in the system. And so that warrant office was critical to instantly reestablishing the rule of law in the city of St. Louis. And it had immediate impact, immediate results. And I'm proud to see that the, the current circuit attorney has maintained that effort. General St. Louis judge already to hear arguments. We flip the story a little bit in another lawsuit challenging Missouri's abortion law. This is one of the ones that lawmakers passed measures that stands and inserted their own religious beliefs. Where is this all headed and what do you think is going to end up ultimately on the ballot before Missourians? Yeah, I mean, the, the, look, it, it's important to understand who the, the plaintiff is here, and it's the Church of Satan has declared that uh, their religious right to kill babies has been violated by Missouri's heartbeat bill that protects innocent life and the, the, the health of, of women and children. And so uh, they've challenged that statute. Uh, we've won almost on all. Uh, we've defeated all of their claims except for one. The, that single claim still needs to be litigated, and so we're going back to court today to litigate that claim in the city of St. Louis. These types of claims have failed in the past, uh, and so we're confident in uh, ultimate victory on this issue, and we'll, we'll continue to defend the health and safety of women and children in the state of Missouri. General Bailey, any other news you'd like to share with our audience today? It seems like things are always uh, bubbling and boiling in your office to, to the public benefit. 
Yeah, you know, guys, and I know we've talked about it before, but we have the most important First Amendment suit in this nation's history pending. We've uncovered a relationship of coercion and collusion between Biden's White House and big tech social media to silence American voices in violation of our right to free speech is codified in the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Everyone will remember when those censorship algorithms on big tech suddenly changed in 2020 and all of a sudden people were being shadow banned or booting, booted off platforms to include President Trump. Well, it turns out that was done because the federal government demanded it. And so, we've again, we've uncovered the worst First Amendment violations in this nation's history. We've got to build a wall of separation between tech and state to defend our First Amendment right to free speech. We went to court back in May and got a nationwide injunction handed down in July. We've successfully defended that injunction twice at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. So the score is three, Biden zero in the fight for free speech. We're going to the Super Bowl. Uh, the United <laughs> States Supreme Court has granted cert on that case, and we'll be arguing that case shortly after the new year uh, to defend our First Amendment rights to free speech. All right, Andrew Bailey, thanks for joining us. I'll be popping the corn while we all watch that argument, okay? All right. <laughs> thanks for, very, very much for joining us. All right, there he is, Andrew Bailey. Joins us this morning on Wake Up in Missouri. When we come back, that would be all except for this. Stay tuned for more. This is Wake Up in Missouri. Text the crew at 874-9390. Warning, everyone on the show can read your texts. And that would be all. Except for this. Yep, apologies to Vanilla Ice this morning. Slice, slice, baby. A hungry cook has pizza aficionados on edge after revealing the sneaky way he steals a piece of his customer's pie without them noticing. Put it up on TikTok and it got 3 million views. Shows the guy Pizza Pro Jay Ryan pulling the pizza out of the oven, then sneakingly swiping a strip out the middle with a pizza cutter and oh, pushing no. the pushing the halves back together and putting it in a box. Oh, oh, then he holds no. up the camera and says, look, dinner. And in the background, if you pull up the TikTok, the Bad Girls Club song, How Will They Know, is playing in the background. One commenter said it's called The Driver's Slice. Another said, nah, stealing. And the third guy said, well, I don't want my pizza cut right now this was a puna gorda florida brooklyn joe's and prompted the line from one guy to say what is an aardvark's favorite topping ant chovies oh, now you know the rest of that story oh john, john you know there was one of my favorite conspiracy theories is from a couple years ago um a youtuber named shane dawson did like this big youtube series about some conspiracies that were going around and one of the conspiracies that he focused on was Chuck E. Cheese of all places and the conspiracy theory that they recycle their pizza so basically if you were to go eat there and you know leave say four slices of your pizza on the table they would take those four slices Put it with another customer's leftover, you know, two or three slices, 
and make it look like a whole pizza. They'd run it back through the oven with oh. some cheese on top and there you go. make oh it gosh. look brand new. Chuck E. Cheese is the devil. Anybody who's been there with kids knows that. Yeah, that can't be <laughs> Obviously, true. it's not no, been no. proven, but it's one of my favorite conspiracy theories to just kind of <laughs> laugh at. <laughs> what a story. What a story. Hey, we ought to talk about something that's very important to me because it's very important that women have their screening for breast cancer. So, Stephanie... Yesterday, congratulations! I know I went and got my first mammogram. Oh yeah, you are uh, that age now. I know oh. I was feeling, and all of my doctors were on top of it. I don't have a lot of, I, but like my my uh, OBGYN and my regular doctor said, "Oh, you're forty. You gotta go. You gotta go. You gotta go." So I went yesterday. I have heard from other folks. Oh, it's not. You know, it's not very fun and whatever. It wasn't bad. Yeah. And it was like 15 minutes. It was super fast. There's a myth about how it hurts so bad, and I think in the early days. Uh, there's a learning curve from the person administering the exam, and with different technology, yeah, it was it could be true occasionally. But nowadays, with the great technology, it's lower dose, less pain, and more information for the radiologist. Well, even better. I've heard many women come out of mammograms and thinking that they were just in a booby trap. So, oh, <laughs> you know, John, you'll get a kick out of this. When the mammograms first came out, I had a couple patients who had had bad experiences with pain, and they they sent me a, a, a meme. It was a cartoon of a guy standing against the wall. With a couple of plates squeezing a guy part. Oh, no. And, and, all, and all it said was manogram. Oh, no. I mean, that, that's only fair, right? I mean, I have had many uh, a voluntary beauty procedure that was much more painful that I actually paid for. Um, that was that has been much more painful than what I went through yesterday. But, you know, I think we've all been affected by cancer. Um, and here, you know, I know it affects uh, people in my life and others uh, close to me. Yeah. Uh, especially here recently uh, in mid-Missouri. And it, it's, a, it's a horrible thing and anything we can do to encourage others to get out there and find it early. Um, and, you know, I, I'm busy. <laughs> and I didn't want to go yesterday. And I didn't want to have to take that time off my calendar. But it's important. I am so thankful that you did that because, you know, some of the recommendations from the more bean-counting um, dependent organizations, I won't specify who they are, uh, say, you know, and, and some insurance companies will say, you know, they're going to 50, age 50, you know, whereas really 40 is the right time to get your mammogram or yeah. earlier if you have a family history. You, should, you know, the, the 50 people want to save some money, you know, and they're claiming that the gals between 40 and 50, it, it may result in a few more biopsies that come back negative. Mm-hmm. And, but I think I'd rather know earlier. I can tell you. With the treatment as great as it is now for early breast cancer, I tell patients if they have an early breast cancer and they know surgically when it's taken out, they do a lymph node biopsy with some great technology, um, that I tell them, hey, this is not going to be, this is going to be a little speed bump in your life. Yeah. I, I, 20 years ago, I wasn't able to say that. Mm-hmm. So it's a big deal. Thanks for doing that and sharing it with everyone. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, but, you know, we've got someone coming up next hour, which I'm really looking forward to, because this is about commerce in Missouri, right? And uh, so this is a guy with the group called the Hawthorne Foundation. We're looking forward to that. Yeah, he's actually with Port Casey, um, and they do a lot of economic development there within Kansas City, but they also are members of the Hawthorne oh, Foundation. The okay. I've recently joined. They had a meeting here last year in um, in Columbia, and it was really interesting. We heard uh, Moon Choi talk about all the great things going on, but they also take these international trips yeah. to go basically tell others about all of the good things going on in Missouri and trying to bring, uh, not only bring businesses yeah. here, but support the businesses that we already have. Yeah. You know, speaking of business and commerce, I uh, Helene and I joined with our practice, we joined the uh, the 
Chamber of Commerce here. And so we went to our first quarterly breakfast yesterday, yesterday morning. And it was a panel discussion with Kip Kendrick and Randy Cole and uh, to Carlon Seawood. It was about the unsheltered, the homeless population. Really an enlightening conversation. You know, there are a lot of private groups that are doing an awful lot to try to address this issue. And I think it was really informative. I have to, I have to compliment the chamber and Commissioner uh, uh, Kendrick and DeCarlon and uh, Randy Cole with the Columbia Housing Authority. Did a great job. I'm so, sad I missed it. It was Sounds really, like a good event. It was a really great event, yeah. You're listening to Wake Up Mid-Missouri with producer Hannah, Stephanie Bell, John Marsh, and yours truly, Randy Tober. I'll see you this afternoon, by the way. Hope you'll check us out then. When we come back, the Hawthorne Foundation. We'll learn about that on Wake Up Mid-Missouri. The nurses all gathered round And they gazed in wide wonder At the joy they had found The nurse spoke The 